Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Ben Cope back to the program. Uh, Ben, you may be a new voice to some folks. You'll be a familiar voice to others. But for the sake of people who are hearing you for the first time, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Hi, Brian. Um, I'm with Young Voices, a a political commentator with Young Voices. And I'm based in London. And my day job, I work uh, for a strategic communications consultancy. Very good. Well, I'm I'm looking at your article on uh, Comment Central. We must sever the link between economic growth and environmental degradation. Boy, does that seem like that's been an issue. Look, some people are just growth at all costs. Other people, and and this, sadly, this is kind of from the environmental side, are, no, 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 we need to go back to basically living in caves with one set of homespun clothing. Somewhere there's got to be a happy middle. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about uh, that that link between economic growth and and trashing the environment. Um, First of all, Let's let's put it into perspective. I know that there are there are nations that, that tend to do this. Are these the nations though that are most involved in environmental concerns? So I th- I think that perhaps the the headline slightly slightly mischaracterized the, the point I was I was trying to make in the article. In that it was really focusing on on population and ideologies around around population. Whether you know some people think populations are too big, some people think they're too small. But both of those ideologies get in the way of the the response that we're trying to that we should be trying to bring towards towards climate change. So I think it is it, potentially more of a kind of intellectual argument rather than a uh, kind of practical economic one. Was the, was where I was trying to get at. Let's let's talk a little bit about those population concerns. Um, obviously, Earth's population has uh, has filled out quite a bit. I mean, look, I remember you know passing the seven billion mark and going, "Wow, that got here quick." Eight billion, you know, <laughs> came even quicker. Um, at what point, you know, do, do we start to, to listen to the Malthusians? I, I I'd be hesitant to, to put a to put a number on it. I think um, I think there's a, there's a lot of people who. Who are on that side who would say we're you know we're already well well past I think they call it the, the carrying Earth's carrying point or carrying limit, um, while others say you know anything above there's a big 10, 10 billion would be would be far too high. I think with this with this climate change ecological approach I was trying to bring to population ethics, really it's about how many can um, we sort of safely uh, and, and sustainably support support on Earth, and clearly there's there's no hard and fast number that depends on how sustainably we live what our carbon footprints are like how much we can manage to decouple our economies and and our lifestyles from from economic degradation so i, th- I think it's it, it's much it's that kind of mentality we should be bringing to it rather than a sort of quantitative approach okay talk to me about the cornucopians I, that's a that's a term i really am not that familiar with but uh, what do the cornucopians believe you're right. It's quite a it's quite a niche, quite a niche school of thought. So the, these are a group of people. Um, they 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 really like tech. They they they're really optimistic about the human progress. They're generally quite sort of rational, quite scientific, and they they basically see they, they they see more people as a great thing. They think the more people you have, the the cheaper uh, key goods get. So we 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 feel richer. We also innovate more because you know more minds think of more great things. So it's, it's a really kind of optimistic, abundant kind of um, supportive, supportive of abundance, that kind of agenda. Um, 
and there was a kind of an, there was an initial uh, school of cornucopians that were that that, that were created as a, as a backlash to probably the first real group of environmentalists, you know, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But then, as the this sort of degrowth agenda has come onto the uh, come into play over the last decade or so, they've they've they've, they've reemerged. Okay, I you know. I, could, I probably tend to lean towards more, you know, I, I think uh, that innovation is, is one of the products, you know, of, of the human mind and, and more minds working on problems would be more likely to, to find solutions. Now, that's that's a very simplistic approach, and, and that's not to deny that we're, we're facing some real challenges. But is there a, a middle ground? Is there some place where... Um, where there, there, where people can come together to work on this without having to commit to either, you know, strict depopulation or just, you know, carefree, you know, let the population grow like weeds. I, I really hope so, and I think, like you, I, I, I tend, I tend to really, really try and cling to some kind of op- op- optimistic agenda that, that we can, as humans, strive for more, strive for better, think, think our way out of problems that we we may encounter. But I think I, I mentioned this book called Superabundance, that's um, probably the, the, the defining text of the, this new group of cornucopians written by a couple of people at the, the Cato Institute. And I, I, I found it really surprising and disappointing that the environment and climate change just is not part of their analysis, when for me that feel, feels like, you know, what, what, what are you trying to attack? Um, what, what, what are you responding to? They, they seem to be responding to the environmentalist concerns of the 60s and 70s rather than the degrowth agenda now, which is much more concerned about climate change. So I think you've got to, you know, while it's, it's all well and good having this cornucopian ideology, you've got, you've got to realise that you, you've got to think of a way that it can, it can work and, and can adapt to, to a warming planet and try and reduce that. And, you know, I'm going to throw this out there just because I, I'm a little bit of a contrarian on, on some climate issues. But um, to, to what extent do we attribute climate change to, to being man-made as opposed to being part of, of natural cycles? I, I'm just I know that there's debate out there about it, but I, I'd love to get your take on um, do, do we sometimes lay too much blame at the, the feet of mankind or, you know, should we have been looking there all along? Well, so f- firstly, I, I'm, I'm not I'm not a scientist, so I, I'm always I feel like you've got to add, add, add the caveat to, to any any opinion I have on this. But I I, I, I would very very strongly think that um, you know cli- the, the recent climate change we've seen it, it is a is a man-made is a man-made issue. It, it's it's happened over such a short period of time, yeah, and and it pretty much perfectly tracks the um, you know the, the increases in in global emissions. So I, I'd I, I'd be keen to sort of to push that to push that view. Okay, thank you. I, and you know, I, again, I just I, I like to to explore some of the different possibilities. Um, one of the things that that to me makes makes some degree of sense and may not explain all of it is that uh, the the sun itself, the solar um, influence, you know, on on our not only our planet's climate but other planets within our solar system, uh, would seem to indicate that maybe it plays a, a role. And and I only point this out because. It seems that at the more extreme sides, you know, like the, the depopulation side of, of the environmental uh, movement, um, there's always kind of a quest for political power. Well, you know, if we just tax you more, if we if you just give us more power, mm. we can change the client, climate. And that that strikes me as opportunistic. I mean, so I, 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 while I, I probably push back on some of the, the, sort of the, the scientific arguments about, about climate change, I, I would agree on 
or on the sort of authoritarian bent within the, the degrowth movement. I, I quite recently read Less Is More by Jason Hickel. It's, it's quite a it's, it's where one of one of the key texts, key recent texts in the degrowth movement, and it, it's a, it, it's quite an odd book because it, it starts very practical. You know, climate change is a, is a, is a real thing. We can't we, we and we can't solve it through growth based economics. Therefore, we need to look at something after that, and then it ends on this very odd sort of quasi spiritual. We need to live at one with the planet, and it doesn't quite link the two. So how do you how do you how do you get everyone to live in that live in that way? And I feel there's there's kind of an unspoken authoritarianism that everyone needs to live like me, live how create planets I want to create, um, which I, and I think I think we, we probably we probably see it in quite a lot of the deep green environmental movements. Yeah, I have no problem whatsoever with with what I would term good stewardship. In other words, uh, mm. I don't think we should be you know strip mining the earth. You know, every chance we get. I think uh, wise use of resources, particularly renewable resources, that's in our best interest. Not just thinking for ourselves, but you know, for generations to come. But it, it seems like. There, it's easy to it's easy to fall to one extreme or the other, and uh, I, to me, you you seem to strike a, a pretty good balance between the two without getting too um, dogmatic about uh, no, it's got to be this way. There can be no other way. It's, it's the balance I was I was trying to strike it, and, and I, I suppose it's this it's this connection to population where at least in the in the environmental debate we, we see these two you know either. You know, it, it, it's not real, or, or at least it's unimportant. Versus, it's the biggest issue humanity has ever faced. Therefore, we need to you know, do unspeakable things to address it. And I, I think that 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 divide is we're, we're we're seeing that mirrored in ideologies about population, perhaps without really realising it. And I think you know, given climate change is only going to rise up the political agenda, as you know, as I think population demographic issues will do as well. So I think it's, it's really important that we recognise recognize the, the biases, I guess, in a lot of these unthinking ideologies we might, we might hold. Well, and that's, you know, for me personally, that's that's one of the hardest things is trying to keep my own biases from. Yep, that's that seems to agree with me. Therefore, it must be right. Again, we're talking with Ben Cope. Ben, let's let our listeners know where can they follow you? Where can they find you on social media? Uh, they can follow me on Twitter at Ben H. Cope. Thanks. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, I'm happy to welcome a new contributor to the show. Uh, her name is Maylene Salabaria. <laughs> and I, I really worked on, on trying to get your name correct there. Uh, Maylene is part of the Dissident Project through Young Voices, which is a remarkable project in and of itself. But Maylene, I'm, I'm very happy to meet you and very anxious to learn about your story. Um, I understand that you were born in Cuba and then uh, you found your way to the United States. Let's, would you mind telling us your story? Could we just begin with, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and uh, where did it all begin? 
Yeah, of course. Um, thank you so much for the invitation. And it's it's really um, a pleasure to be able to talk to you. And I'm definitely humbled by the experience. Um, so yes, I am what I usually said when I talk to people is that I was born in Cuba and made in the US. I was born in Castro's Cuba. I won't say when because we don't disclose ages in public. You know, it's a very Hispanic Latino thing. <laughs> uh, but I live, uh, I live and, and grew up and and finished all my uh, you know school years in Cuba. It left in two thousand one. And uh, through a very series of hoping adventures and experience was able to come to the United States as a refugee. Um, I cannot believe that when I do the math in my head right now, I'm able to say that that was 22 years ago. And let me tell you, Brian, that I haven't looked back since then. Um, it's It was probably the, the hardest uh, decision that I ever made in my life, but it's the one that I am the most proud about. Um, so yeah, I, was, I am a proverbial child of Castro's uh, communist government, um, went to school in Cuba in government control of schools until I graduated from, uh, you know, the equivalent of high school, was able to um, go to the university and finish law school in Cuba. And 22 days after my graduation, literally after I got my diploma, my transcripts, without registering with, without, with what would be the equivalent of the board in the United States, um, I hop in a plane to Europe technically to attend a wedding and they're still the celebrations are so good they're still waiting for me to come back <laughs> wow uh, tell me a little bit about what you remember growing up in cuba what was life like well, it was my entire uh, life, uh, Brian. I left Cuba age 27 as a young adult. So I am the the generation that when I was in the elementary years, um, middle school years, it was when Cuba was a satellite of the Soviet Union. So that was the environment that I grew up as a child. Um, you know, we're rationing books uh, from toothpaste and food to toys, three toys once a year that my parents had to do lines for an entire week to be able to get them in those stores, um, you know, growing up in a school system that was completely controlled by the government, a school system that by default was designed to um, uh, separate us and mentally uh, divide us from our parents and our families, um, and obviously brainwash us to the political agenda from the state. I am the generation um, in Cuba that um, grew up uh, being taken out of a school to go to march and protest against against, uh, you know, in front of the Malecon in Havana, against against the uh, United States government and against the Yankees. And uh, I grew up until I was a teenager on this on, under this mentality that we have to take mandatory military preparation classes because the U.S. Marines were going to invade us at any time, you know. So that was like the entire uh, kind of like background mindset of me growing on in Cuba. I was in Cuba. Uh, I was a child when the Maria boat leave happened in the 80s. I remember that, you know, the protests, how they were in neighbors' houses, throwing eggs at their doors because they were considered counter-revolutionaries. So look at Cuba now, people are dying to be able to have a fried egg in their kitchen. I was in Cuba when um, the 1994 um 
vote leave during the Clinton administration happened, when the brothers to the rescues, um, you know, civil small planes were uh, shot down by the Cuban army. I was on that side of the story when the Leon Gonzalez crisis happened. I was in Cuba working in a restaurant right there in the in the Havana Harbor where the Cuban government sank the tow, the tugboat that was trying to escape Cuba, uh, where 27 people died and 21 of them were children. Um, So yeah, that was like, I saw, just imagine you here seeing all this news in the United States and me being on the other side of that equation. Um, Being a proverbial child of the state, as I told you before, I think it was probably until I left, until I graduated from high school, because in Cuba, in my years, the middle and the high school, you were like in boarding schools, systems where you were completely away from your family except two weekends in a month. it was it was very hard to see another perspective or to open your eyes to reality when you are a teenager and you are under that close environment. So it was probably until I graduated from high school that I started to see day to day life in real society in Cuba that I start opening the eyes to the whole lie that I, I have been sold. I was, uh, you know, I grew up. My gosh, so many examples. I was the generation that I grew up seeing my grandmother having her Bible and hair. Uh, her images of the sacred heart of Jesus hidden inside a closet. Because if a neighbor would see it, they would be rat out with the local authorities in the neighborhood and they would be considered, you know, counter-revolutionaries. I was baptized 10 years ago here in the United States as an adult in a ceremony joined with my oldest son because I am the generation that he had. My parents made the decision to baptize me in Cuba. They would have been fired from their jobs. Wow. So again, it's like, okay, you want me to tell you my story? How much time do you have? Do you want the short version <laughs> of it? Or do we have time to sit down and relax with a Cuban coffee seat over it? Um, I, this I'm makes me want to have is... you back on this program again so I can learn more. Yeah, uh, we we have is... about three minutes before, before our segment is done. Let me ask you this. Um, there came a point where you had to make the decision to leave. What was it that, uh, that solidified your decision to go ahead and, and to leave Cuba? In my case, um, it was no one specific uh, event. I would say that it was like a progressive accumulation of several things that I started witnessing. Like I told you before, when I graduated from high school, I had to go to law school in what would be the equivalent of a distance education program because the government assigned me to another career. And I started to see life, like real life and the struggle of, of you know, the scarcity, the misery, the political persecution, the reality of a day-to-day life. Um, and it was like a, a combination of all those events that led me to, like I said at the beginning, pick up my diploma, my my transcripts, two suitcases, Brian, and $200 in my pocket. That's wow. how I started my life in the United States 22 years ago. And it's the best decision that I have ever made in my life. Talk to me about uh, how you connected with Young Voices, because you are now part of their dissident project. So we are going to be hearing more from you. But mm-hmm. how did you meet up with Young Voices? 
It was like a super random thing that happened, um, connection through friends that they knew of my background when I started working uh, with an education-focused gra uh, grassroots nonprofit organization is what I've been doing in the last year. And they connected me with John Voices and with this dissident project, which is kind of like curious because I have been doing these speaking engagements for the past 20 years, but basically on my own. And that was kind of like got me really excited about um, the dissident project, being able to see that they're putting these speakers, viewers, viewers together. And it's super, super exciting and humbling, like I told you at the beginning, to be able to be part of this project, uh, seeing so many uh, common stories with the same background. And the whole goal, and I think that the, the greatest investment on it is that if by telling my story and my testimony, I can open the eyes of one young fellow America to learn not to take their freedom for granted, Brian, I can tell you it will be totally worth it. Well, and no one speaks with greater authority on issues of freedom versus force than someone who has actually lived under, you know, a totalitarian type of, of government. So, I applaud you for, for doing what you're doing. Again, we're, we're visiting with Meline Salabaria. She is a Young Voices contributor with the Dissident Project. We actually have a link in the show notes that will take you to a page that will give you some more information. Is there a place where people can follow you on social media? Uh, yeah, absolutely. My uh, name and full name is completely open on Facebook and uh, Twitter as well. Uh, the Twitter handle is uh, Cubanita with little letters at uh, Rocky Mountain National Park because I have been based in the Rocky Mountains for the last 16 years. Um, and yeah, all that is available on social media. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We are welcoming back one of the veteran contributors to Young Voices. That would be uh, Professor Alexander Salter. He is uh, from the Rawls College of Business at Texas Tech. And Alex, great to, to catch up with you once again. I know there are some people meeting you for the first time. Uh, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Sure. I'm an economics professor in the business school at Texas Tech University, and I'm a Young Voices senior contributor. I love the organization. They're a wonderful, wonderful group to work with. And I write about a little bit of everything, regulatory policy, taxes, monetary policy. You name it, chances are I've had an opinion or two on it. Well, and I'm finding that uh, what you write about is becoming extremely relevant as uh, we are entering some fairly choppy waters um, economically, monetarily, and so forth. There's, there's a lot of things that are raising questions. In particular, I'm looking at a letter that you submitted and had published in the Wall Street Journal about Biden's regulatory assault is worse than recessionary. And I wonder if you could set the stage for me as far as uh, I clearly I've seen the, the Biden administration has used uh, regulation in in ways that are not uh, particularly economically productive, but but in particular, the, Phil Graham and Pat Toomey apparently weighed in on this. I'm not aware of what they said, but could you kind of bring me up to speed about those who have been warning that this is this is courting trouble? Absolutely. So I was responding to that article in the Wall Street Journal, written by former senators Toomey and Graham. 
And they outlined the various ways in which the Biden administration, without congressional support, had ratcheted up rulemaking, executive orders, and all these things that the administrative state does to shackle the economy. They focus primarily on the effects on the energy sector, but there's also lots of shenanigans happening with housing, energy, the way that the administration conducts cost-benefit analyses to justify rulemaking. And they warn the readers of the Wall Street Journal that this is setting up the United States for what they called a regulatory recession. And insofar as they mean that the economy might get uh, the economy might be harmed, output will tank, unemployment go up. Those things could happen, but calling it a recession actually lowballs the problem. It's much more significant than that. A recession is a temporary thing. You throw a wrench in the gears of markets, eventually markets self-correct and things work themselves out. There's a dip in economic performance, but then things recover. These regulations that the Biden administration is forcing on a fragile economy could permanently hamper the U.S. economy. The economic damage could last as long as the rules are in place. There's no self-correcting mechanism because what these regulations do is make it permanently more difficult, meaning more costly, for businesses to produce and distribute goods and services. So we're really close to just shackling the private economy, the productivist sector, with a ball and chain, and we're going to act surprised when it sinks. That's what's going to happen. If we want things to swim, we've got to unburden the swimmer. Now. Alex, I'm really grateful to have you as a resource in my life, both in following you online and getting to interview you from time to time here on Moving Forward with Young Voices. But I want to make sure I'm using the word recession correctly, because I hear it a lot these days. I actually use it sometimes, but I'll admit I'm really not too certain that I'm using it correctly. Could you give me a, a, a broad definition of, of what are, when we're talking recession, what are the conditions that we're describing? Yeah, if you ask the statisticians, it basically means two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, and there's been a big brouhaha about whether that is, in fact, what a recession means. The problem with that from an economic perspective is that output can go down for reasons that are not cyclical. If output goes down because total spending in the economy temporarily splutters, that's going to be something that eventually fixes itself out as the rot works its way uh, works its way out and that markets will eventually recover. But if you envision a country that's hit by a major natural disaster that wipes out a major, uh, a large share of its productive capacity, obviously unemployment's going to go up. Real goods and services production are going to go down. But it doesn't make any sense to call that a recession. It's not like we're falling below the potential level of economic output. Instead, the potential level of economic output has fallen because the natural disaster wiped out a bunch of your productive capacity. So actual productivity has fallen because potential productivity fell. I would tend to limit the description of recessions to any instance in where the economy temporarily deviates from its maximum sustainable potential. But what's happening right now with the Biden regulatory ratchet is not a recession. It's a permanent or at least potentially permanent enfeeblement of the American economy. Wow. So, okay, that uh, that makes a lot of sense. And, and actually, as you talk about it, you know, from a natural disaster standpoint, absolutely. That makes it, you know, this, why would we call it a recession if, you know, if it was something that we had no control over? But in this case, ugh, there's, there is control, or at least someone's calling shots that, that, are, that is causing this uh, deviation below um, the economy's productive potential. And, and I want to ask you, put on, your, uh, put on your clairvoyant cap, if you would. Tell me, what are they thinking? What is the Biden administration thinking with some of the regulatory, um, regulatory uh, onslaughts that they've unleashed you know, <laughs> since taking office? 
Well, I certainly know that they're not thinking about the overall health of the economy. Undoubtedly, they have various private interest groups that they're looking to satisfy. They're having a governing ideology that they're trying to adhere to. Uh, the economic damage is an unfortunate byproduct of people who should know better trying to micromanage the American economy, and it just doesn't work. I mean, I've, I've heard some people describe it as this, and I don't want to believe that, but I've heard some people say it's almost like it's on purpose, though. Like, this is to hamstring the economy or to to cripple it, and, and I can't imagine why that would be beneficial to, to someone in power, since that sounds like a good way to get yourself voted out of power, but um, is, can, is there any reason that makes sense for why, other than pleasing those special interests, they would do such things? I wish I could tell you. I know for sure that what they're doing is economically counterproductive. Whether it's working to actually hold together their governing coalition, I couldn't tell you. I'd like to think that there's going to be a reckoning. You hope that there's some self-correction here. Maybe the plausible reading of all of this is they're looking at the future political landscape and don't think things look too favorable going forward. So they're trying to get in all the goodies on their wish list while they can. But ultimately, my main concern is capital C constitutional. We're not supposed to have major rules like this enforced on the American economy, absent deliberation by the people's representatives in Congress. So when you have the unaccountable bureaucracy largely doing all these things with the president really just rubber stamping it, let's not pretend that he's actively involved in this. He just can't be. With the executive branch just rubber stamping all this, there's no accountability. All you get is page after page of regulation, costs pile up. Everybody's involved, but nobody's responsible. And that means that it's hard to actually turn the page on this and get the American economy back to where it should be. And that's that was my next question for you. Um, what steps could we take to reasonably you know, restrain this this regulatory onslaught? Um, I, I don't know if voting, you know, just simply the people we vote for is, is going to be enough. Or is there a policy that could be pursued, you know, through Congress to help right the ship? One of the problems is that the American public is unfortunately complicit in this, in the sense that they have been legendarily indifferent to procedural constitutional questions. You have to actually care whether the rules come from unaccountable bureaucracies or from Congress. Because if Congress messes up, you can actually identify the people who wrote the stupid bill and got it passed and then vote them out of office. But when bureaucrats who can't meaningfully be dismissed for performance or anything like that are making the rules, again, there's no way to discipline their behavior. And so the American people need to actually understand it matters, not just the content of these rules, but where they come from, because the feedback mechanism for fixing mistakes is completely different. We can change representatives. We can't change the bureaucracy. So we need to face up to that. And voters really need to get behind, I would hope so, a candidate in 2024 who's going to make a serious attempt at reining in the unaccountable administrative state. Oh, boy. Now, here's another can of worms I'm going to pop the top on. Um, it seems like the the regulatory or administrative state, the establishment, I'll just call it for kind of the catch-all, has done a pretty good job of protecting itself from anybody who might conceivably um, make those kind of substantive changes. Um, what, are the, what are the prospects of overcoming you know, that, that kind of uh, political inertia? Better right now that they've been in a while. Based on the jurists that we have in the Supreme Court, for example, they actually care about what the Constitution says. So that's a welcome improvement. And I think that there is a growing realization among the American electorate that no matter who they vote for, the uniparty basically turns out the exact same stuff. And that's because the uniparty really just means the cover for the bureaucracy that's doing the actual governing. And again, I want to, this is not a conspiracy theory. 
there's nothing hidden about this. If you look at where the rules actually come from, they come from administrative agencies whose main employees and the people who run them are not elected. They're either appointed or they're in the civil service, which means that they cannot be touched by conventional political procedures. So that's going to be one of the things that has to change if we actually want public policy to be accountable. The United States is obviously a republic. It's not a pure democracy, but at some level, at some level, the government has to be accountable to the popular will. The preamble to the Constitution vests ultimate sovereignty in the people. And right now, everything that's happening in Washington is happening largely non-consensually in small de-democratic terms. So well, I seriously hope that there's going to be a concerted effort to get this thing under control before we can't anymore. This is where the Federalist in me starts looking at the states and saying, <clears throat> you guys going to step up or what? Alex, great to visit with you once again. I'm so sorry that we're up against the end of our segment. For people who wish to follow your work, where's the best place to find you? All my writings are available at my website, www.awsalter.com. I'm not much for social media these days, so don't look for me there. But if you want to read anything I've written, you can find it at my website. And I'm always happy to hear from readers. So shoot me an email. I'll be glad to talk to you. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices today. Happy to welcome Sophia Hamilton back to the program. Uh, Sophia, I know that uh, some people will recognize, hey, we've heard we've heard from you before. Some are meeting you for the very first time, though. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you so much for having me on today, Brian. Um, I'm a research associate here in D.C., at a libertarian think tank, and I focus on issues related to health care, housing and welfare policies. Hey, I'm looking at a great article that you had published in the Orange County Register about the unexpected consequences of tobacco bans, bonds, taxes, police, and more. And I love I love everything that, that it prompts people to think about, okay, here's the surface, you know, this is what we see at first glance, that looks good. But when they start thinking or start to see what the unintended consequences could be, you know, that's where true wise policy comes from. Let's talk about this, uh, this tobacco ban. First of all, who is who is pushing for this, and what is the, what is the ultimate goal? Are we gonna are we gonna have a generation that's smoke free, you know, with with these tobacco bans? Yeah, so the California legislature is actually considering a bill right now. It's Assembly Bill nine thirty five, that's trying to pr- prohibit individuals born after two thousand six from purchasing or selling tobacco products, and that's any tobacco products. So cigarettes and vapes are all out for that entire generation. And their goal here is to create a smoke free generation, which from the outside, that sounds great. Smoking, we know, is dangerous and hurts individuals and those around them who do smoke. But we do see that bans don't work. So a prohibition on substances like this is not likely to get individuals to stop smoking. And it really is more likely to push them to the black market to buy these products because consumers are going to buy what they want, no matter what the government is saying. And that's really not the goal of the government anyways. So there's a lot of other downsides to this ban besides just pushing individuals to the black market, which we can all see from the outside. Um, it can have an effect on tax revenue, on bonds, and on criminal justice implications as well. Wow. You said it so well. And yet, you know, that that desire, but we got to do something. And I guess maybe that's what, what drives, you know, these bans. Um, so, so talk to me about how this uh, affects 
let's just start with let's start right down the list bonds then we'll go to taxes and we'll talk about police we want to ban you know tobacco for anyone born you know after 2006 how does this affect bonds Yeah, so the bond issue isn't too interesting, and frankly, it's a bit complicated. So I'll have to really go over to my economic specialist there to go deeper into that issue. But um, the tobacco revenue funds the tobacco bonds that the state has that investors play into. um, And if the government defaults on these bonds, it can have an effect on the taxpayers. It's not entirely clear how that's going to play out yet. Um, There was an issue similar to this in the early 2000s in New Jersey. Um, The state was able to bypass it, but it could leave taxpayers on the hook to be paying back those bonds until 2026, or sorry, 2066, which is when the bonds mature. And then looking at tax revenue, that to me is a scarier issue. So tobacco products in California bring in over $2 billion a year in tax revenue because each pack of cigarettes has an excise tax of almost $3. So this tax revenue is funding important tobacco harm reduction policies and programs. So it's funding education services to teach California citizens about the harms that tobacco products are causing them. So if you prohibit the sale of these tobacco products and individuals are still going to buy them, they're just going to go so bypass the taxes altogether to the black market or to neighboring states, because yep. we have seen that individuals are willing to drive to other states. So they're going to lose out on that billions of tax revenue. And it's not even going to be funding the programs that are going to help individuals to stop smoking or to be smoking less harmful products. So it, it's worrisome that the state could lose out on these taxes and that their helpful programs are going to be gone as well. And, and of course, this plays into police as well, because, you know, when, when you get taxing authority involved, police are going to be there to enforce that. Uh, you mentioned, you know, in 2014, Eric Garner, uh, who was killed by New York City police uh, for selling Lucy's, you know, uh, untaxed cigarettes on the street. Um, and, and again, this takes police away from what could be more productive use of their time. Um, I mean, look, I, I would love to see a smoke free generation grow up as well. But I think for it to be authentically a good thing, it's got to be something that happens because they voluntarily chose that, you know, we're just not going to use tobacco. Exactly. I mean, myself, I don't I don't smoke. So this ban wouldn't really affect me besides the tax implications. Um, but you can't force people to stop smoking. That's not the role of the government. The, the government isn't our father telling us not to do this. Um, and like you're saying, this could have terrible implications when it comes to criminal justice. The legislature is saying that they would just find, they wouldn't even find the individuals buying the products. They would find the companies and the stores that are selling these products to underage individuals. But we know from the Eric Garner case that that's not always how police interactions go. And there could be a negative situation that leads to someone getting hurt and going to jail or dying and losing their life. So we're not sure what's going to go and happen there. And it's just it clearly isn't the role of the government to be involved at this level. Well, and I love that you pointed out earlier, too. Where there is a will, there's a way. In other words, if there's demand, if there and there will be people who will want tobacco and tobacco products, they're going to find a way. Now, if it's just as easy as hopping across the state lines to Nevada or something, that you know, that's one way of doing it. But uh, there will also be those who will say, "Huh, you know, it's worth the risk to to engage in, shall we say, less than legal ways to to bootleg the stuff into the state because you know it will have an artificially higher price 
you know, because of that uh, scarcity. Exactly. And that's going to bring even more harm against the consumers because they're going to be taking sketchier products. They're going to be traveling further and those healthcare costs are going to increase. So in the tobacco related health care expenses are already around $15 billion in the state today. And you add on those riskier behaviors, it's just going to increase. And without the tax revenue that goes with it, the state's going to be owing more money. Sophia, you are making a lot of sense. Now, my question is, so why won't lawmakers in California listen to, to the kind of sense that you're speaking? I don't think they're looking at the economic issues behind this because the bill itself sounds great if you're not thinking about the implications there. They want to stop people from smoking, and that sounds great to their constituency. That's something that anyone can get behind because no one wants to see individuals smoking in mass, and we know that the, it's harmful. So I think it, to them, that's the easiest way that they can go about it. Um, and they're not looking at these implications. So I think for the most part, they have good intentions there, but they need to think about the economics behind the legislation to pass actual good harm reduction policies that will stop individuals from smoking and create a voluntarily smoke-free generation. Well, and it kind of raises the question, too, of um, are there institutions besides government that might better carry those educational policies to, uh, you know, the, the people who are at risk or to the young people that they're trying to, to get to consider that, hey, there's a better, healthier way for you to live your lives? I'm so glad that you brought that up. And I'm always promoting nonprofit organizations to be doing this work. I think that's exactly what that sphere is there for. You know, the United States has the most bustling nonprofit sphere throughout the world. So I really think that this is work that they can take up to get those educational services out there, teach children about the dangers of tobacco smoking and vapes, and then also helping individuals getting off of those products. And if you're smoking packs of cigarettes a day, getting them onto a vape because that's less dangerous and then eventually getting them off of tobacco products altogether. So I don't really think that's the role of the government here, but if the government does want to get involved, I think their focus should be on the harm reduction policies and educational programs like the tax revenue is already funding there. Well, and and, and by doing it uh, with, with a less than government sector approach, um, it, it takes some of the politicization out of the issue. And I, you know, I'm, I'm sounding a little cynical when I say this, but everything that government seeks to solve gets politicized and then it turns into a tug of war. And, and this could help avoid some of that and, and still be very much active in trying to solve real problems. Exactly. I completely agree. I think <laughs> there's way too much partisanship in government right now. And if you just take that away from the government, make it not a government funded program, but instead a nonprofit organization going about these services, I think that would make it much more valuable and just have more of an impact on individuals than if you take it outside of the bureaucracy. Yeah. And, and I, I have to wonder just, you know, there's, there's the thought in my head, I'm sure that uh, tobacco companies spend a lot of money, you know, for lobbyists and, and, and representation, knowing that if they, if they need some kind of policies that are favorable, you know, they can, they can wield that influence through money, uh, through government. But, you know, I, I think when you take it out of government's hands, that that ability to influence things strictly in their favor uh, is is at least blunted or balanced with with other ways of, of influencing. Again, we're talking oh, with sure. we're talking with Sophia Hamilton, and unfortunately, we are up against the the clock here. But Sophia, people who wish to follow you and your writing, where's the best place to find you? 
Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Sophie Hamilton. Um, I'm writing about these issues all the time and posting my work. So please follow along. Thank you so much. I hope we talk again soon. Thank you.